All right. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving here uh, as the lead pastor of our community. Uh, so great to see uh, all of you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. Uh, Genesis 29, we are continuing our year-long series through the Jesus Storybook Bible. And, and today we come to one of my favorite stories uh, in all of Scripture, uh, the story of Rachel and Leah. And if you think... Uh, the Bible is boring. Um, I'll say this. If they made a TV show today based on Genesis 29, it would 100% be number one on Netflix. Uh, this is the stuff that reality TV is made of. Okay, It's family drama, sibling rivalry. There's a love triangle, jealousy, deceit, all here. And um, just a little bit of context before we get into this. Uh, this is a story in the life of Jacob. And Jacob is Abraham's grandson. So we've been talking about Abraham for the past few weeks. Back in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to go to a foreign land. But he gives him this promise that he's going to bless all the peoples of the earth through him. That it's going to be his seed that ultimately brings forth the Messiah. And this is not... Uh, because Abraham is a great guy. This is not because of anything Abraham did. In fact, it becomes very clear very quickly that uh, Abraham and his descendants, they're pretty screwed up, okay? And Jacob is certainly no exception to that. Uh, if you know the story, this is a guy who deceives his older brother. He cheats him out of his birthright. He goes to collude with his mom to steal his father's blessing, a father who, by the way, was dying and blind. And so, again, we've said this every week, but the Bible is not a story about good people. It's a story about broken people who experience the grace of a good God. And you're going to see a lot of brokenness in Genesis 29. You're going to see a lot of bad men. You're going to see women being treated like property, being moved around, being used as pawns. You're going to see polygamy. And I think a lot of times when you read the Bible, a lot of people say, what about all these chapters that talk about all of these things? You know, like... Don't you think the Bible is condoning all of these things? And um, as you read the scripture, you realize that um, the fact that these stories are in here isn't meant to condone any of these things that are happening. It's actually meant to show us two things. It's meant to show us, one, the destruction and chaos we bring on ourselves when we live outside the will and design of God. But two, it's showing us that in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our failures and all of our bad decisions, God, out of his sheer grace, continues to accomplish his purposes in and through us. And nowhere is this more true than in the life of Jacob. Okay, at the beginning of Genesis 29, he's on the run. He's fleeing for his life because his brother wants to kill him. And he ends up at the home of his uncle Laban, who ends up taking him in. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. So we're going to read from verses, uh, the second half of verse 14 to verse 35. And it's going to be on the screen behind me. If you're following along on a mobile device, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Okay? Uh, Genesis 29, 14 to 35. This is the reading of God's word. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. 
So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as, a, as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Amen. What a story. Uh, let me say a prayer for us as we dive into God's word. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, to give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going to be going today, uh, we're going to study this text in three parts, okay? The longing, the letdown, and the lesson, okay? The longing, the letdown, and the lesson, okay? First, the longing. Uh, John O'Donohue uh, famously said that the human heart is a theater of longing. It's a theater of longing. And the idea behind this quote is that every person is hardwired with a deep yearning for love, for acceptance, for approval, for significance, for purpose. And we see this in the heart of every character in Genesis 29. So first you have Jacob, right? This guy who has been fighting to prove himself his entire life. Okay, he has clawed his way. Nothing has come easy for him. He's had to game the system. He's had to lie and cheat just to obtain his father's blessing. He's got this massive chip on his shoulder uh, because he's the younger brother in a culture that heavily favored older brothers. Well, this guy gets to his uncle Laban's house, and in the distance, he sees this beautiful girl, Rachel, okay, and it's immediate hard eyes, and you can imagine for someone like Jacob, he's probably thinking, like, yes, finally, after everything I've gone through, finally, like, I think I found the one, right, and uh, we didn't actually read this at the beginning of Genesis 29, but his first encounter with Rachel is, is hilarious, okay? And when you read the Bible, it's, it's a really funny book, right? They, they meet at this well that has this huge stone over it. And 
like typically you would have multiple people move the stone away because it was super heavy. Well, we read that as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, he runs up to the well and he single-handedly takes this stone off, moves this massive stone off the mouth of the well and then starts watering her sheep, okay? So, I mean, people around, it's probably like, what is he, what is this guy on? Like, what is going on? Um, it's kind of like, you know, the, the best way I can describe it is, you know, you're playing basketball, and we all know how it goes, right? You're playing basketball, the girl you like walks in the gym, right? And just a minute ago, you were having fun, laughing, having a great time. She walks in, and all of a sudden, you're like Kobe Bryant, right? You're, it's like, you're like screaming at people, you're clapping, you're calling out plays. People are like, this is, this is a church league, bro, like, what are you doing, right? And, and this is exactly what happens, right? This, I mean, he sees Rachel, like, she's looking cute with her sheep and, and everything, and, and then he's like, ah, and then moves this, like, massive stone off the mouth of the well. And not only, after, not only that, when you read the story, he rolls the stone away, runs up to Rachel, kisses her, and then begins to weep out loud, okay? So many red flags, okay, there. Okay, I mean, I, I, I know, like, uh, I don't know how many single people there are in the room, but if you ever meet a guy on the apps... And the first thing that happens when he meets you is he begins to weep out loud. Just, just, just run, okay? I mean, even a tear, like, just run, okay? Um, for whatever reason, Rachel's cool with it, okay? Which makes her a little weird, too, okay? But um, this is the Old Testament. A lot of weird stuff, a lot of weird people, okay? Um, the point is, Jacob is completely smitten. Love at first sight. And so when his uncle Laban approaches him with a job offer and says, you know, what do you want to work for me? Jacob doesn't even hesitate. He's immediately, he's like, I want her. I want Rachel. And I will work for seven years, okay, uh, if you give me your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, in case you're wondering, yes, like, technically this is her cousin. And it's, again, Old Testament, weird stuff happening. Uh, you can ask DC about it later. Um, anyways. Uh, this is an amazing deal for Laban, okay, because, I mean, seven years in return for his daughter, he's like, okay, he's a con artist himself, he's going to take it, and uh, lo and behold, we read that Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, and the narrator makes it a point to add that these seven years seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. For Jacob, Rachel is the one he believes will make his life right. There is no price he isn't willing to pay if it means he can have her. He's thinking, if I can just have Rachel, I'd be happy. Buried deep within all of us is this deep sense of longing. If I could just have X, then everything would be right. If I could just own this, if I could just be in a relationship, if I could just buy a home, if I could just save up enough money to provide for my family, then I'd be happy. Well, seven years go by. Jacob is ready to collect. He goes straight to Laban and he says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Okay. And in the Hebrew, it's way more graphic. Um, Jacob pretty much says, okay, I've done my part. Give me, my, give me your daughter because I want to have sex with her. Okay. Pro tip. Do not ever say that to your girlfriend's father, okay? Not, not a good look. But again, Lake of, uh, Laban, for some reason, is okay with it. I don't know, okay? Um, anyways, even the forcefulness of Jacob's request here conveys just how much Jacob is longing 
for Rachel. How desperate he is for Rachel. For seven years, this has been his one pursuit, and his dream finally feels like it's within reach, right? It's like um, actors who move to L.A. with nothing. Um, they, ju just, they come here just to pursue their dreams. Countless acting classes, audition after audition, you know, close call after close call, rejection after rejection, and one day they get the opportunity to read for their dream role. It's this moment that feels like the culmination of everything they've worked for. They've dreamt of this day. This is what Jacob is feeling in this moment. We see the longing of Jacob's heart on full display. Well, we know that Jacob isn't the only one longing for something in this story. We have to talk about Leah as well, right? This poor girl. The first mention of her is in verse 16, and it says this, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And nobody quite knows what that phrase weak eyes means. You know, scholars have debated this for a long time. Uh, some interpretations say the phrase weak eyes literally means she, there was a physical ailment with her eyes, like she was either cross-eyed or her eyes were protruding or there was some disease. Um, some interpretations translate this to mean that just a general statement about the way Leah looked. Some, translate, some interpretations say um, it that the only thing worth noting was Leah's eyes. At the end of the day, it actually doesn't really matter because the bottom line is that there is a clear contrast between her eyes and Rachel's beauty. Basically, Rachel is the pretty sister, homecoming queen, could have any guy she wants, the girl everyone wants to be like, and Leah is the not-so-pretty sister, whose own dad feels like the only way he's going to get her out of the house is to con someone into marrying her, right? I want you to think about this. I, I have a daughter myself, right? And it doesn't matter if the entire world thought a certain way about her. A hundred percent, I would never think a certain, I, I would never think of anything about my daughter, anything other than she's the best thing ever. But think about growing up in a house where your own dad does not believe you have a chance. And so he has to con you off. He has to pawn you off to someone through these like shady, deceitful means. Okay? You got to think about what it was like for Leah to grow up with a sister like Rachel. Her whole life, she's been compared to her. Rachel this, Rachel that. Rachel, you're so beautiful. Everyone loves Rachel. It doesn't even have to be stated. You can read between the lines and assume that Leah from a young age is very well acquainted with a deep sense of longing. A longing to be loved, a longing to be noticed, a longing to be wanted, and it's so freaking sad for Leah because no matter what she does, it's never good enough. She knows Jacob will never love her like he loves Rachel. She sees the disappointment in Jacob's eyes when he realizes it's her in the tent and not Rachel, and then, like, the humiliation of having to sit there the morning after and watch Jacob run to his father-in-law, like demand that he give Rachel back and immediately without hesitation agree to work for another seven years, right? I used to read this story and I used to feel sorry for Jacob. No, it's not feel sorry for Jacob. You feel sorry for Leah. 
she's like, dang, am I that bad? Am I that unlovable? Am I that much worse than my sister? You know, I just watched um, the movie Past Lives, and I'm a little bit late to the party, and it's this film that follows the relationship between two childhood friends, uh, Nora and Hezong, who, who get separated because Nora's family uh, immigrates to Canada. Well, years go by, they reconnect, there are clearly sparks between the two, but because they're living on opposite you know, parts of the globe, um, they kind of lose touch. Well, more time passes, Nora gets married to a different guy, they have this life together, um, and then one day Hezong, uh, all grown up, decides to come visit her in New York, okay? And don't know why her husband let this happen, okay? But uh, there's this gut-wrenching scene in the movie where the three of them, Nora, Hezong, and her husband, Arthur, are sitting at a bar. And, and Arthur, um, he's white, so he doesn't speak Korean. And so Nora and Hezong, they're having this side conversation in Korean. And the camera is like zoomed out and you just see the look in Arthur's face. And his look says like a thousand words. And it's like, it's a look that says, she will never love me like she loves him. It's like the most heartbreaking look. And this is what Leah feels like. I'll never measure up and she tries to compete and in the only way she can by bearing children she's like i'm not gonna beat my sister on her look so i just i better just produce babies and so she just starts popping out babies one at a time and after each one she says surely now my husband will love me surely now i'll measure up to rachel surely my life will matter to jacob now i wonder how many leahs are sitting in the room today and I'm not just talking about women. I'm talking about anyone who's ever known the pain of being unwanted, unloved, discarded, overlooked. Anyone who's ever felt the sting of loneliness and rejection, who no matter how hard they try, for some reason, they're never the ones people call out when they want to hang out. They're always watching everyone else's stories at home. For whatever reason, they're the ones who never get the second date while everyone, all of their friends get the second, third, fourth date. They're always the ones watching from the sidelines. And I know there are a lot of Leahs in the room because we live in a city made for Rachels. We live in a city where we glorify people who look a certain way, present themselves in a certain way, and when we see things come so easily for certain kinds of people and not us, it's maddening. And we think, if we could just have that, if I could just have that, if I could just be him or her, then surely my life would matter. And in case you're thinking, man, so in the story, Rachel has everything. Like, she's the one who doesn't need anything. Uh... Read Genesis 30, and you'll see that Rachel's life, as beautiful as she is, as much as she has the love of Jacob, her life is just, just as empty as everyone else. The first words of Genesis 30 say this, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Dramatic. Rachel has the looks, she's got the guy, but apparently that's still not enough. 
She's still dissatisfied. So now she's jealous of Leah. So much so that she says, Jacob, if you don't give me any children, I might as well die. You know, sometimes it's the ones who are the most beautiful and popular and put together on the outside who are the most miserable on the inside. It's the ones who have the most flawless social media feeds and the most flawless lives on the outside who cry themselves to sleep at night. And this reality is so true and so prevalent in a city like Los Angeles. And you see what's happening? Everyone in the story is longing for something, believing that if they just had that, then they would finally be happy. Single people want to be married. Married people want to be single. Jacob wants Rachel. Leah wants approval. Rachel wants to produce. Nobody is satisfied. Which brings me to the second point. I promise the next two points are a lot shorter. The second point is the letdown. The letdown. Perhaps the only thing worse than living your whole life trying to grasp something is actually obtaining it and realizing it's not what you thought it would be. After Jacob completes his seven years of service, Laban throws him this big wedding feast. And in Jewish custom, uh, weddings were these week-long drinking parties, festivals, so much food, so much alcohol. And basically, at the end of the week, the father of the bride, in this case Laban, would walk his daughter straight into the wedding tent where they would consummate their marriage. And people ask all the time, like, how did... You know, that's crazy. How did Jacob not realize he was sleeping with Leah? Like, how is this possible? Well, in those days, the bride was heavily veiled. You have to understand this was at night. This was before electricity, right? Um, you have to understand that everyone was a little tipsy. Everyone was wasted. They were wearing beer goggles. It was very, very, like, very much in the realm of possibility, okay? And... We know what happens. Jacob sleeps with who he thinks is Rachel, and then in the morning, he wakes up, and he's like, ah, you know, like, Rachel, is this what you look like without makeup? You know, like, what? You know, and, and the way the narrator describes this moment is so ironically understated. It's one line. When morning came, there was Leah. Like, the Bible is so savage. When morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> and in a way, this moment perfectly encapsulates the human experience. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he puts it this way. He says, embedded in the phrase, when morning came, there was Leah, is the disappointment and disillusionment every human has felt from Eden onwards. You see, it started with Adam and Eve. There was a promise. You bite the fruit, you can become like God. It looked so good on the outside. They were longing for it. They wanted it. They took a bite, and they watched their world unravel. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, all looking for something or someone that will make them feel whole. And I know we can relate to this. We work ourselves into the ground. We sacrifice the best years of our lives to obtain the Rachel that we're convinced is going to make everything right. And sometimes... The scariest thing is we actually accomplish our goals. And we think, finally, my life will be right. But let me tell you, you can wake up in the nicest home. You can have all the money in the world. But in the morning, it's always Leah. Always. You could get married to the man or woman of your dreams. But in the morning, it's always Leah. 
Some of the loneliest people I know are married people. Because it's a different kind of pain when you're actually married to a spouse and yet you still feel unwanted and unloved and discarded. You see, until Jesus is enough for you, nothing will ever be enough. You will always be let down. And I want to make it very clear, it's not that any of these things are bad. Everything Leah wanted, love, approval, affirmation, purpose, these are good things. These are things our hearts have been created to desire. But when we seek these things apart from God, they will always let us down. But here's the good news. And this brings me to my final point, the lesson. Behind every letdown is a lesson. And the beauty of God's grace is that amidst our disappointments and all of our setbacks, God is always refining us and teaching us something about his heart. I think it's very interesting that this story comes one chapter after Genesis 28 when God makes a promise to Jacob that he will never leave him and he will always be with him forever. And it's almost like, why would you bring this disappointment one chapter after you've made that promise? And it's as though God wants us to know that living life with him does not free us from the disappointments of this life. It only allows us to reframe all of our disappointments, to turn all of our disappointments into opportunities to become more like Jesus and to draw nearer to him. One of the questions I got asked this week in, uh, in our CGs was, why didn't Jacob fight Laban harder after he discovered like he was sleeping with the wrong sister, right? He's clearly furious when he goes to Laban. He's like, why, why did you deceive me? Why did you give me the older one when I told you you knew I wanted the younger one? And then Laban is like, well, you know, in our custom, uh, it, it, it's, it's customary to give the older one, not the younger one, older one first, not the younger one. You're going to have to work for me another seven years. And Jacob is like, okay. It's like, bro, like, a little, fight a little bit harder. You just worked seven years. Like, at least negotiate that number down to, like, three years or one year. But Laban says that, and then Jacob immediately agrees. And you're like, what is happening here? Well, Laban is saying, around here, we honor the firstborn. And if you're Jacob, if you put yourself in Jacob's shoes, that's like a dagger to his soul. We honor the firstborn. Oh, but last time I checked, Jacob, you wouldn't know anything about that, right? Oh, I deceived you? Didn't you, aren't you the same guy that deceived your dad? Oh, I deceived you by giving you the other sibling? Didn't you deceive your dad into thinking you were the other sibling? And it's this thing that gets to the heart and you see that in that moment, this isn't stated, but Jacob is being exposed. He is like God is showing him, this is what you did. And it's like Laban saying, karma's a bee, bro. Like, this is what happens to you. And he's lifting the rug up on Jacob's life. When you start following Jesus, know that sometimes it's going to get worse before it gets better because you will become so much more aware of your sin. You will become so much more aware of the relationships that need repair in your life. You will become so much more aware of your pride and your selfishness and all the ways that you fall short. It will expose you. And this is what we see in Genesis 29. We see the hand of God working through Jacob's circumstances, through Jacob's disappointments, his letdowns to accomplish his purposes in Jacob's life.
Well, that's Jacob. What's the lesson for Leah? What is God revealing about himself through Leah's letdown, through her disappointment and pain? And I would say it's two things. The first thing is this, that there is no person, no achievement, no circumstances that will truly satisfy the longings of our hearts. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And what this means is that Leah's emptiness and disillusionment is not God abandoning Leah. It's not God punishing Leah. It's God opening Leah's eyes to see what she desired more than anything else was actually him, was actually in his presence. He was trying to show her that what you want isn't of this world. Her emptiness wasn't God's indictment. It was God's invitation for her to come back and find her rest in him. And it takes Leah three children to understand this fact. After her third child, she's still saying, maybe now my husband will love me. But after her fourth child, who she named Judah, we read that she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. And that's how the chapter ends. No mention of her husband, no mention of wanting her husband's approval. The moment Leah began to love and praise God simply for who he was, not for what he could do, she didn't need her husband's approval anymore. But the second lesson I believe we glean from Leah's life is that salvation comes through suffering. And by salvation, I'm not talking about going somewhere after we die. I think as Christians, sometimes we think that salvation is about going to a good place and avoiding the bad place. I'm talking about being with God in his presence. Nothing will draw you into God's loving embrace like suffering can. This is why the Bible constantly points to the fact that those who are acquainted with suffering are those who are closest to the heart of God. The Bible says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God is drawn to the weak. He's drawn to those in pain. He's drawn to tears of longing. I think the most important phrase in this entire chapter is found in verse 31 when it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. When he saw that Leah was not loved. We skip over that, but it's so profound. When nobody saw Leah, when nobody wanted Leah, God says, I see you. I want you. I love you. You see, God is in the business of choosing those whom the world rejects. And Leah didn't even know the whole story. You know, I wish, when I read this, I wish I could sit down with Leah, like in the present day, and I wish I could read to her the opening lines of the New Testament. And this is how the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament opens. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and I believe Leah would stop me in the moment of my reading and she would say, wait, 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 say that again? Jacob the father of Judah. And I imagine Leah would stop me right there and say, wait, Judah, that's my son. There must be a mistake. Jacob didn't even love me. 
He loved my sister more. She belongs in this genealogy. She's the one that you should be writing about. I'm the other sister. I'm the sister nobody wanted. And I wish I could show Leah that God didn't just want her. His plan all along was to use her rejection to bring forth the Savior of the world. Of all those God could have chosen, God chose the girl no one wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. And Leah's life in so many ways was a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. The prophet Isaiah describing the coming Messiah writes, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. God didn't just sympathize with Leah. He became Leah. He became like her. And it was out of Jesus' rejection and his humiliation that those who were once far from God could now experience rest in him. It was his suffering that brought forth our salvation. Let me just close by saying this. Today, if you're sitting here and you feel like a failure, things haven't been going your way, you've experienced some horrible letdowns recently, if you feel overlooked or discarded, I wonder if God has a plan to bring forth Jesus in and through your life. I wonder if in the midst of your disappointment and frustration, there is an invitation to come back to the source of life, to God's loving embrace, where we find ultimate freedom, joy, and satisfaction. Let's pray. want to give us a moment, just a brief moment, just to respond, to ask yourself, what are the things that you've been longing for, the things that you think, if I just had that, my life would be right? that in that moment we would see the face of Jesus who says, what are you looking for that you haven't already found in me? I want you. I see you. I love you. That we would allow Jesus to minister to us. Gracious God, so many of us are exhausted trying to uh, earn the approval of others, trying to chase 
joy and possessions and people and things and circumstances. But God, I pray that you would remind us this morning that everything we desire, we already have in you. All the approval, all the validation, all the love and acceptance is found in your life, in your death, in your resurrection. And so, God, I pray that you would allow us to just sit with that reality that today, exactly as we are in whatever, whatever lot we've been given in this life, that we are deeply loved and cared for. And I pray that we would know. I especially want to pray for those who come and we feel so weak and we feel so unnoticed and so overlooked. I pray that especially for my brothers and sisters who feel that way, that you would remind them that you are drawn to the weakest among us. You are drawn to those who the world has deemed not beautiful, not worthy. Thank you that we worship a God who loves us like that. We thank you for this word today. We ask that you continue to press it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'm going to invite us to stand. And let's just respond to this word with these two songs of praise. Let's worship together. <laughs>